the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord, and invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So ends the reading of God's Word. Let's pray together. Father, this is indeed your Word, and we desire to hear your voice, to hear you speak to us through it, even through my feeble words this morning. Father, be with us by your Spirit. Help us to have open ears and an open heart, and loosen my tongue and my lips, that we might declare your praise. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It's a curious difference between this story of David's anointing from that of Saul's anointing just a few chapters before. In chapter 9, it was Saul who was sent to Samuel by the Lord as Saul was looking for his father's lost donkeys. And there was no question in Samuel's mind who was the Lord's anointed as he arrived there where he was. But here in chapter 16, it is Samuel who is sent to find the king. He is sent to the house of Jesse in Bethlehem to anoint one of his sons. But which of the sons is unclear? And even after a parade of the sons of Jesse, it's not that man is not found among that host of sons. It's only when they look to the fields where the young David is keeping watch over his father's sheep. And so with such a stark contrast between the two anointings, it's an appropriate question for us to ask why the high drama in the anointing of David. Why would the Lord not simply tell Samuel, Samuel, go and anoint David the son of Jesse, for he is the next king? Or better yet, as he had with Saul, 
Why not just send David to go find Samuel so that he would be anointed? And the answer, my friends, is because the Lord intends to instruct us to see how he sees. The Lord said, Go to Bethlehem, for I have provided for myself a king among the sons of Jesse. I have provided for myself a king. Perhaps more literally, this should be translated, for I have seen for myself a king among his sons, among the sons of Jesse. And that is a principle that we will see in this passage, beloved, that the Lord does not see as man sees. He wants us to see what he sees, and he wants us to see how he sees. For man sees with the eyes, but the Lord sees with the heart. So our story today comes immediately following the rejection of Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 15, and Samuel had been grieving for Saul. But now came a time for the grieving to end. The Lord said, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Beloved, as we draw near to the Lord and we begin to love what he loves and hate what he hates, it is appropriate and right for us to grieve over those who have hardened their hearts to the Lord. It is even appropriate for us to grieve when the Lord rejects someone who has hardened their heart. But there does come a point when the Lord leaves a person to their own devices that the grieving must stop. And so it was here. The Lord said to Samuel, why are you continuing to grieve? It's time to move on. Fill your horn and go to Bethlehem, for I have provided for myself a king from among the sons of Jesse. And this was a task that was risky. Samuel was in the town of Ramah, and Bethlehem was about 11 miles south of that, and Samuel would need to pass through the town of Gibeah, which is where Saul was. And Samuel had just told Saul that the Lord has rejected you and is handing the kingdom over to your neighbor, to a man who is better than you. And as the prophet would travel, no doubt people would talk. No doubt Saul would hear of it. And in Saul's jealous insecurity, he might abuse his kingly authority, capture, seize the prophet, and put him to the death. And Samuel says, how can I go? If Saul hears of it, he will kill me. So the Lord says, well, take a heifer. And when you go, say, I am coming to offer the sacrifice to the Lord. Now, beloved, we need to understand that the Lord was not instructing Samuel to be deceitful. He was not telling Samuel to lie. God hates lies, and it is impossible for God to lie, and God would never instruct his servants, his people, to lie. But it is the glory of God to conceal a matter. God had revealed to Samuel his ultimate intention to anoint David as king, and that's why he was going to Bethlehem. And because we have been given God's revealed will, we understand that that's why he was going. But that was not revealed to Saul or to the people of Israel. And God instructed Samuel to take this heifer, to offer the sacrifice, to conceal the ultimate purpose. 
It's not that he lied. He actually did offer the sacrifice. That's what he actually did. It was a means of concealing the ultimate purpose. This anointing was on a need-to-know basis, as is all of God's revelation. And Saul did not have a need-to-know. And so Samuel brought the, the animal, and they went to Bethlehem, and the elders saw him. They welcomed him, and they said, but they were, they were afraid, and they were trembling, and they said, do you come peaceably? He said, yes, peaceably, I've come to offer the sacrifice. Consecrate yourself and come to the sacrifice. And so they did. And in walks Eliab, Jesse's firstborn, and Samuel takes one look at him, and he said in his heart, as I live and breathe, this is the man. He's tall, he's handsome, he's clearly a warrior, he seems strong, confident, self-assured, 100% kingly material, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. The Lord said, nope. Nope, you're looking the wrong way. He said, don't look at his outward appearance or his, the height of his stature. He said, Samuel, don't you remember about Saul? Saul, he was, there was no one taller than Saul, no one more handsome than Saul. He was the people's choice. And yet I rejected him. Don't look at his outward appearance. Don't make that same mistake twice. You're looking how man looks. The Lord does not see how man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. We'll come back to that statement. This is very important for us to understand. Well, if Eliab wasn't the, the Lord's choice, then the search was on for the right man. So then Abinadab, secondborn comes by. Perhaps he's the one. Nope, I have rejected him. And then the thirdborn, Shama, Maybe he's the one. Nope, I have rejected him. And then the rest of the sons, Nathaniel, Radai, Ozem. Nope, nope, nope. And there's no more sons that came. Samuel, kind of like Cinderella's prince holding the glass slipper after all the girls had tried on the slipper and and if it didn't fit on anybody, here he was with this confused look on his face, saying, well, the Lord sent me to Jesse's house in Bethlehem. I, I'm at the right address. The Lord always gets the right address. And he turns to Jesse and says, are all your sons here? Jesse says, yes. Well, there is the youngest. We, he's out in the field watching the sheep. We didn't think he was needed here. He's not that important. Samuel says, ah, yes. Go and fetch the lad. We, we will not sit until he comes. And so, of course, he comes. When he arrived, the Lord said, arise, anoint this man. He, this is the one. And so David was anointed in the midst of his brothers. And it's a very interesting selection process that the Lord put us through as we came through coming to this realization of who David was. But it's instructive, isn't it? And it's instructive for every person involved in this process. It was instructive, first, of all, first and foremost, for the prophet Samuel himself. Even after the whole experience with Saul, Samuel was still looking with his eyes, still judging with his eyes. The Lord had to say, no, you're, you're looking the wrong way. That's not how the Lord looks. 
The Lord looks at the outward appearance. Or man looks at the outward appearance. The Lord looks differently. It was instructive for Jesse and his brother and the brothers of David. They, they thought David was insignificant. He was just the youngest. He should be out with the sheep and with all of us and everyone else. It's instructive because David was the least likely, least plausible candidate, most insignificant, and yet he was the one that the Lord had chosen. And the Lord gives this very interesting principle that is familiar to us, but essential that we understand it. And it's there in verse 7. And he says, this is the reason why he rejected Eliab. He said, do not look on the appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Simple enough for us to comprehend what he's saying, but it's essential enough to us, important enough that it's incredibly necessary for us to make sure we understand this correctly. And we can do that by first by saying that there are two perspectives in how there is a seeing of things. Man is seeing with outward appearance. The Lord is seeing something different. These two different perspectives are essential, but what matters most is what God sees. But we see how we judge, how we perceive affects everything that we do. And the Lord says, mankind sees by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so, how does man see it? With outward appearance. Literally, in the Hebrew, it says he sees to the eyes. We perceive everything through our senses, what we see, what we hear, what we experience. We don't have access to in the invisible, the inner, the heart, the spiritual, we see the things that are before us. And left to outward appearances only, we will judge incorrectly because we don't have the heart of the matter. We are prone to partiality, to favoritism. Samuel was prone to see Eliab in his stature and his outward appearance, and he thought that he was the sure king. Jesse and the brothers thought that David in his youth was not the one. But we do the same thing. The apostle James warned us against making evil distinctions, showing favoritism based upon external things. We see a person who looks like they have wealth, or speaks with intelligence, or we hear theological precision coming out of their lips, and we judge them differently than someone who does not have such things. Go into a church that has a multi-million dollar building and lots of programs and lots of people, and it's easy for us to judge that that is a God-honoring church, that God is pleased with such a church as compared to a smaller church with less people and less programs meeting in a school. Or perhaps 
we evaluate outward temporary blessings or hardships based on external appearances. And one person seems to be met with hardship upon hardship, whereas another person seems to have the Midas touch, and everything they do turns to gold. Or nations. Some nations are filled with material wealth and prominence on the world stage, whereas others are more obscure and face oppression and hardship. And we look at those things on the outside, and immediately we judge based upon the outward appearance. And we say, what does this blessing mean? What does this hardship mean? Does one mean the Lord's favor, and the other the Lord's disfavor? We judge on outward appearances. And yet the Lord does not judge, does not see in the same way. He says, man sees with the eyes, but the Lord sees, our translation says, the Lord looks on the heart. But again, literally it says the Lord looks to the heart. This is such an important statement for us. We need to really unpack what that really means. It could mean one of two things. It could mean that the Lord looks beyond outward appearances into the heart of man to see the true nature of things. Or it could mean that just as man looks with the eyes, that the Lord looks with his heart. Or put another way, is what God's saying that he is looking to what is inside of a man as his judgment? Or is he judging based upon his purpose and will for man and that is how he looks and to answer that question we need to look at the life of David and we need to look at this particular call of David the Lord had said I have seen for myself a king from among his sons among the sons of Jesse what was it that the Lord saw what was it that got his attention that, that caused him to send Samuel to Bethlehem? We know for a fact that it wasn't outward appearance because he, or outward things because he, he clearly pointed that out. It wasn't, uh, Eliab was the, was the favorite for outward appearances. He was tall, he was handsome. It wasn't based upon outward appearance. Now, notice it's not that David was ugly. In fact, just the opposite. It says that he was ruddy. That he had a reddish complexion. He was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and he was handsome. But that's not what the Lord was looking at. That's not what draw, drew him to David. And it wasn't that he was a shepherd or even a courageous shepherd. And it wasn't that he was a member of God's covenant people or a member of a large covenant family because all the brothers were part of that same family with that same blessing, and yet he had rejected all of them. Now, it was none of those outward things. The question is, did God see David? Had he called David because David was a godly man who had a love for the Lord? Because as we know from reading the rest of the story, David was a godly man. He loved the Lord. He was a man after God's own heart, we hear. He was humble before the Lord. He was a, a psalmist who wrote more psalms. He was earnest about the worship of God and fought the Lord's battles. He was a godly king. 
well, most of the time. He was also a murderer and an adulterer. Not just an adulterer, with his eyes and with his heart, he was a physical act upon my adultery and my murder type of person. He was a bad father, failed to restrain his son, failed to protect his daughter. Well, I guess we should say, well, did God just see David because, well, generally speaking, he was a godly man. Most of the time, he did what was pleasing in the Lord, Lord's eyes. Was, was there something else? Beloved, here's the principle. And we cannot forget this. What God saw, the reason God had, David, God had seen David, David had God's attention, not because God had a place in David's heart, but because David had a place in God's heart. There was nothing in David that attracted him, attracted the Lord to him. That is not why the Lord saw him. The Lord saw him because of his pure, unmerited grace and love. Because from eternity past, God had seen David and he had loved him with a free and unmerited love. There was, it was not because he knew what David had done, or he had knew what David was about to do, it was all because of his mere, his mere love, because he loved to love David. And that is what he saw. And it was the same thing with the man Noah. You may remember from the book of Genesis. Noah lived in a time where everyone on earth, it says that all the, the, every inclination of every person was evil continually. But Noah found favor with God. Why did Noah find favor with God? Did Noah do something that had earned that favor? Well, we're not told that he did. It just says that God found favor with, or Noah found favor with God. He just chose to love Noah, to preserve a remnant in Noah, to lavish his love upon Noah. And so it was with David. What's more, beloved, hear this, because this is so important. The only reason why God had a place in David's heart was because David had a place in God's heart, not the other way around. Because we're told in Scripture that without faith, it is impossible to please God. But we're also told that faith is a gift. It's a gift that is given by God, by his Spirit, to whomever he wills. It's the Spirit of God who, who comes and goes like the wind blows. We don't know where it's going. We can't control it because it is the sovereign Spirit of God showing His kindness and love to whom He will. And that Spirit had gone and created a place in David's heart to love the Lord and give Him praise because God had been pleased to do so. And what's more, beloved, as God looked at David, and as he saw something lovely as he looked in David's heart, the only thing that was lovely in David was the spirit of Christ Jesus, the spirit of his son dwelling in David, ruling and reigning within David's heart. 
to do what was pleasing in his sight. Because scripture is clear that the Lord Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, is the most excellent of men, the most beautiful of men, perfect and glorious in every way, but not in the eyes of the world. Not from outward appearances. In fact, from outward appearances, he was anything but. The, apostle, or the, the prophet Isaiah told us that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. And yet he was the most excellent, the most glorious as God saw him. He was born to a poor family in obscure Nazareth in weakness and humility. And from all outward appearances, his ministry was a failure. He was rejected. He was reviled. He was accused. He was convicted. He was tortured. He was beaten beyond human semblance. He was made a reproach in the face of, in the eyes of man. He was crucified and shamed and he was killed. And from outward appearance, he was destroyed. But God doesn't look at outward appearance. The Lord looks at the heart. It looks at his heart, his intent, and it was God's will to crush him. It was God's will to appoint him as the Savior of mankind who would be victorious and vindicated and rule and reign supreme. And such is the Lord Jesus Christ. But, beloved, understand this. When the Lord looks, if there is anything beautiful, if there is anything lovely, it is only because he is seeing his beloved son working in a person, dwelling within a person, remaining, ruling and reigning, working that which is pleasing in his sight. Our true beauty in the eyes of the Lord is only that which is in Christ Jesus, in which Christ Jesus shines through us. And beloved brothers and sisters, I hope you can see what wonderful news that this is for us. What wonderful news that this is for you and for me. The Lord said, I have seen for myself a king from among Jesse's sons. If you have any love for the Lord, if you have any fruit of the Spirit in your life, that is only because God in his supreme unmerited love has seen you and you have a place in his heart and have had a place in his heart from all eternity. And in the course of time, he has sent his spirit to create a place in your heart for himself. It's not because you love him that he loves you. It is not because or if and when you will love him enough or be faithful enough that he loves you. He loves you because he is love and he has loved to love you with all of his heart, with all of his strength, and he has focused his eternal saving love in your direction. We just read this in the law passage. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love to us while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you believe that? That God loves you not from a single thing that you bring to the table, 
All you bring is your sins. All I bring is my sin. But God's sheer unmerited love, he had a place in his heart for you from all eternity. And he gave his son for you. And he sent his son for you to create a place in your heart for him. And beloved, when he, he looks at you and he sees your love for him and the, the deeds, the spirit of Christ, the, the spiritual fruit coming from your love for him, he sees the beauty of his son in you. He sees his son in you and you in his son. And beloved, he loves his son with a perfect and unbreakable and eternal love. And that love, beloved, is yours in Christ Jesus. And outward appearances can deceive us. Beloved, don't be deceived by outward appearances. The Apostle Paul Try to warn us against that. He said, remember, remember your calling. Remember where you came from. He said, remember your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many noble birth. God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of Lord and beloved, that is, like it or not, that is you and me. We are the ones who fail the eye test in the eyes of man, but are safe and secure in the heart of our God. But we need to go back to where we began. The Lord intends to, to instruct us to see how he sees. So how can we see as he sees. So we, we stop looking merely at outward appearances. And I think there's three important principles that we can put down to help us in this. The first is that we must train ourselves to look at the heart and not outward appearances. It's easy to say, but what we really what we um, want to get to is what is if God is seeing with his heart, his purpose, and his will, we want to see what God sees as his purpose and will. And what God is concerned with is the heart of man. That is what he has come to transform and to, to save. He wants, he wants the substance to be true in Christ Jesus. The outward self is wasting away, but the inward self is being renewed day by day. That is where God is at work, is the heart. So we must look for the heart to see what God is doing at in the work in the heart. The second principle is that, um, and, and here's the trouble, is that we are focused in seeing the outward appearances. That's all that we can see. We can only see with our eyes and hear with our ears and experience things, but God has created us in a way to give us indicators of the heart. Ways to diagnose what is in the heart. Jesus said it is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. So we can listen to the words. 
You can evaluate the words. Jesus also said, no good tree bears bad fruit and no bad tree bears good fruit. So we look at the fruit of someone's life, their actions, their words, as indicators of what is going on in the heart. We inspect the fruit. We're called to do so. But the third principle, and this is equally essential for us, is to realize that we are only limited in what we can see with respect to the heart. We are looking at fruit. We are not. We don't have sight of the root. We are looking only to outward appearances. Only God can see the heart, which must mean that we must be careful not to judge hearts. We've not been given the right to judge because we don't have sight of the true heart of the things. We inspect the fruit. We encourage, we plead, we exhort one another, and yet we cannot judge. And so we must entrust ourselves to him who judges justly. And these principles of getting to the heart of the thing, that's, these are principles we need to apply in every aspect of our lives. We need to be training ourselves to see to look to the heart of the matter. And by way of application, we'll look at three instances, three important questions to consider how to do this. The first is, how can I know that I am in Christ Jesus? The most essential question that we can ask ourselves, how can I know that I am in Christ Jesus? But we cannot look to outward appearances only. The things that we are doing or the things that we are acting. We must look to the heart. God is concerned with the heart behind the actions that is fueling the actions. And yet we, yet we, we look to the fruit. But we can ask ourselves, do I have a love for Christ? Do I have a true love for for the Lord? And is that fueling my life? When others look at, listen to my words, when others see my actions, do they see the fruit of God's Spirit at work within me? Do they hear a love for Christ and a love for the Lord flowing within me? Do they see a love for one another, for brothers and sisters in Christ? A self-sacrificial love being driven out of my love for Christ? Do they see a, a love to share this gospel of Christ Jesus? And what's more, does that, do, do these actions flow from a heart of love for the Lord or are they merely man-made pieces of fruit? A means of, I've got to be good enough in order for the Lord to love me. It must flow from our love for the Lord as fruit of our love for the Lord. Second question, how can we as a church know who to call as men to serve as officers within the church? And yet again, we must not look to outward appearances, but must get to the heart of the man. The Lord does not instruct us to call successful men in the eyes of the world, but godly men who love the Lord and have exhibit 
godly character in their lives. As we look in God's word in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1, where we see the qualifications for elder and deacon, almost all of them are characteristics of godly character. The fruit of the Spirit working in a man and bearing fruit in his life. We must look to the heart because the Lord looks to the heart. And last, how can we know if our church is healthy or if our church is pleasing to the Lord? And yet again, beloved, we must look beyond the externals and outward appearances and get to the heart. Big buildings, plentiful programs, many members, those things are well and good, but neither here nor there as far as pleasing in the eyes of the Lord. The question we must ask is, what is the heart of Zion's worship, both collectively and individually? Do we have a sincere, a genuine love for Christ, a love for the gospel, a love for God, work as Christ is working in us as a body? Is there true Love for one another that is unifying and encouraging and empowering and spurring one another on to love and good deeds. A self-sacrificial love, a humble love that brings us together so that Christ shines through us. Is there a love for the gospel such that we bear witness that a watching world can see the love of Christ in us? a love for the stranger, a love for those who are outside the church, a love for those who are outside of Christ. Is that shining through us? The Lord looks at the heart of the church. And so must we. And so, beloved, as the Lord looks at Zion Presbyterian Church, what does he see? As the Lord looks at your heart, What does he see? If as he looks at Zion, he sees the beauty of his son reigning and ruling in and among us, cultivating a love for him that is expressed in our actions, then he will be well pleased no matter where we worship and no matter how many people are on the membership rolls. Beloved, if as he looks at you, he sees the beauty of his son shining through in your love for him, in your love for your brothers and sisters, in your love for the gospel, then rejoice and be glad because you can know for certain that you have a place in his heart and by his spirit he has created a place in your heart and you will be in his heart forever and ever, safe and secure. So rejoice and be glad, because that is a treasure beyond words can describe. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your love for us. Thank you that you look at us, and you don't look at our outward appearance, but you look at us to see your glorious purposes that you have for us. And thank you that you accomplish everything that you intend to bring about for your glorious purposes, that we might praise and adore you as our great God. Oh, Lord, would you... Would you exalt your son Jesus in us? Would you give us individually praise and adoration and love for Christ 
and for you. Would you help us to be a faithful church that loves one another and loves you and loves the, the community in which we are in enough to lay down our lives just as Christ has laid down his life for us. Lord, please do these things by your spirit in accordance to your good purpose that you might receive all the glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.